The first conversation you'll have within a founding team is the equity share. Like that's the first deal you do. Not many people will talk about it is do we split it three ways? Is there a lead? Being able to have that conversation and come up with an equity split amongst founders is one of the most challenging conversations and, and deals that you have to do as part of being a new business. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. What's it like to completely pivot your business three times before you even launch? In this episode, we are chatting with Catherine Clayton, the founder of new InsureTech brand, Peachy Insurance. Peachy is insurance for all the things that you love, your favorite pair of earrings, that brand new watch, and your precious designer handbag. In January 2021, Catherine came up with this ingenious idea to make insurance relevant to the younger generation by offering convenient micro-insurance policies. She quickly brought on two co-founders and together they've navigated so many challenges. They're no strangers to a strategic pivot, having already changed tact three times in the lead up to launch. Their first pivot came when they pulled back on the amount of cash that they wanted to raise. Initially, they were seeking up to $2 million, but then they had to pull back to preserve equity for future rounds and they took just enough money to keep them going. Their second pivot came when ASIC changed insurance regulations, meaning that their original product, the one they'd been working on for literally months, could no longer be sold. And their third pivot came when they had to change their entire launch plan because their flagship product just wasn't ready. It has been a wild ride and the brand has not even gone live yet. Catherine is just such a shining example of how resilient founders are. And in this chat, we offer a sneak peek behind the curtain of what it takes to launch a brand. Peach is really uh, a product offering that makes insurance relevant for the way that we live today. So when we think about the things we care about, the products we love, the stuff we save up for and buy, Peachy is uh, a business that basically has your back for that stuff. So we offer single item insurance on all the kind of cool things that you have um, in your life rather than traditional contents insurance. So it's a really, it's a little twist on a, a traditional product, but it just makes it really relevant for younger people. So where did the idea come from? Like, was there a point in time where you were like, I just bought this amazing product and I cannot find a way to insure it? Like, where did the idea come from? Do you know, it's funny. A lot of, I I can't, I try to pinpoint exactly where the idea came from. And often it, it was actually, when I think about it, a combination of factors, right? There was so many things happening. I'm obsessed with business and what's happening in, 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 you know, the business more broadly and watching a lot of trends in financial products in particular, you could see change, right? You could see through buy now, pay later, whatever you think of that, whether or not you think it's great or, or otherwise, um, micro-investing platforms, um, new sort of up-and-coming micro-banks. There were all these things happening in financial services to make their products more relevant for a younger generation. Um, and nothing was happening in the insurance space. And I was also observing like, you know, p- young people buy cool stuff these days, really expensive things. We're investing in bags and um, fashion and all these kind of accessories that enable our lifestyle. They're really important to our identity. So things are becoming more than things, I think, even more so than in the past. And so it was kind of a colliding of those worlds where I, um, yeah, just really noticed an opportunity, I think, for a, a pretty traditional financial product being insurance to kind of meet people where they were in a more, just a more modern and relevant way. Um, so, yeah, I'm a bit of a business geek, always was fascinated by the the rise of Afterpay in particular um, and how that was able to come into the market and, yeah, saw an opportunity, I think, for insurance to, to do the same or do similar um, by, yeah, just being a little bit different and a bit fresh. Catherine, why doesn't this already exist? I mean, it seems relatively obvious to me to be able to insure, you know, those precious items that we purchase, but why, yeah, why hasn't this been available? It's interesting, isn't it? Like I think a lot of good ideas, you kind of go, why doesn't this already exist? And I think that's an example of something that the market's ready for. In some ways it does exist, right? It's just not packaged up in a way that is relevant and accessible to the market that wants it most. 
So sure, you can list, um, you know, valuable items on your contents policy. There's a couple of players out there who have single item insurance. They're hard to find. It's a pretty clunky process. It's not a particularly sexy brand. You know, the, the industry in general doesn't talk to this customer. So just because they have a sort of product that's sitting there, they're not telling a story or connecting with the target customer. It's just kind of out there for people if they want to dig around and find it. Um, but there's also a lot of things about the existing products that are not particularly functional, I guess, in terms of things like premiums that you have to pay, excesses, really co- sort of confusing terms and conditions that make people go, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to understand what I'm paying for. I want to know exactly what I'm going to get. So there are some products out there, but we really just think they, they just don't hit the mark and they're not talking to their customer in a way that's relevant to them. So they might as well not exist, right? <laughs> I think that's so true. Like as a young person, like I'm not actively You're not that young anymore, in- sorry. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. 33 years young. Oh, my God. Oh. Thanks for that, mate. Oh. <laughs> as a relatively young person, or pre-40. Geriatric millennial. I'm, a I'm not geriatric. No, I am. <laughs> I'm geriatric millennial. <laughs> but I think like I'm not looking for insurance because, as you said, it it feels like a really traditional sort of like corporate dry um, offer out there. And I think about, as you said, those financial products like Afterpay, UpBank, that are really speaking to this young consumer. Like it's almost such an obvious gap Mm. that there's just nothing in the insurance space as a youngish person that I'm like, I identify with that brand. I want to investigate how they can add value to my life. 100%. And I think, you know, that's been validated by conversations that we've had when pitching to other insurance companies and investors is people can see that no one is designing products, designing brands and talking to this audience consciously. So you'll see some traditional players kind of going, oh, why don't we make a cartoon and pop it on the ad or let's use a different color. You, You know, they're sort of trying, but there's not a really conscious, no one's making a real conscious play for that market. And I think there's a level of when you're in the incumbent, when you're the incumbent in a business, you can become complacent and just assume that because you're big, because you have a massive market share of a certain generation, that by default, you are going to be able to talk to the next and upcoming generations. And I think that's where players like UpBank and and Afterpay um, have been able to kind of step in to where there's just a massive gap. And, And that's sort of the plan for Peachy as well, right, is to be able to Uh, we think insurance is great, right? Like the idea that you can pay a small amount of money to an organization to offset your risk in the event of something going wrong. That's cool, right? That's a, that's a great thing. Um, you know, it's cool. It's not, maybe it's not cool. That's a very geeky. (laughs) (laughs) I love love that. And the question was like, yeah, what excites you about uh, this industry? Well, you've just answered it. I mean, (laughs) money, like, you know, we all care about money, whether or not, however much you want to be able to say, you know, say, I care about money, but we care about our financial security. You know, we want nice things. We want to, you know, all of us have aspirations for ourselves. Most of us have aspirations for ourselves financially um, whether we like it or not, insurance, managing risk, you know, that is part of it. And so we fundamentally believe in insurance, the fact that it is important, it matters. Um, so why, why isn't it available in a way that is affordable and relevant and, and sort of having that conversation with younger people? Because, you know, it, it matters whether or not you, it's on your radar or not. It is important to your own financial future. And that's one of the really interesting challenges and things that you're setting out to solve is like, how do you make insurance cool and sexy to a younger audience? Mm, you know, like yeah. that is a, that is an interesting question and an interesting challenge. Cause it's typically a category that young people are like, well, I haven't had it in the past. So like, why do I need it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I think we're underestimating the weight and the importance of a sexy brand, especially in these spaces, in the tech enabled kind of you know, dinosaur um, industries that, you know, we look at and go, okay, cool, you, we're, we're bringing the tech a fair way forward and we'll talk about that in a bit, how, you know, cross-platform integration and, yeah. um, you know, obviously, yeah, we're, we're moving um, insurance along, but it does require the brand. And I don't think we talk about that enough. I, I don't, you know, and it's funny, when we started this journey, I remember pitching to a big, very big, well-known VC um, organisation in Australia and, and, you know, we had the conversation and, 
our play has always been very much around there's the product, we believe in the product, we've, we've nuanced the product so it's relevant to this market. Um, there's the technology, so the way we distribute the product is disruptive, that's cool, it's smooth, it's a great e-commerce experience, which is what this generation expects. They don't expect a clunky banking type experience. And then the brand. And along this journey, some people have understood the importance of brand and, and the, the investors that we have and the partners that we have really get it. So we, when we think about the brand, we think about it not only as that kind of the, the image and the language, but the beginning of a conversation with this entire generation um, about insurance. And, and that's very big picture, right? <laughs> but it is important to realise and acknowledge that um, it, it's the beginning of a conversation because for many of these people, um, you know, they're using insurance companies that their dad used or, you know, that they don't have insurance. So it's it's a real kind of embryonic to use a gross term um, a really really embryonic kind of um, starting point for for people becoming aware of the product um, so yeah the brand part is that's what's super exciting as well you know to be able to that's playful and fun you know so how long have you been working on this where are you at in mm-hmm. the journey yeah so we the founding team came together in March 2021 so there's myself um, we've got Sophie Doyle, who um, is the founder and brains and genius behind Alpha Label, which is a luxury um, brand. And then we have Cam Toby. Um, so Cam's, we call him our entrepreneurial money guy. So former um, Wildcats bas- professional basketball player and now in, um, you know, in the world of finance and soon coming over to Peachy. Um, so where we're at now. So we've, we've done the work in terms of really understanding the market. We've developed our technology. So that's complete and ready to go. Um, we've got our, uh, yeah, our brand assets and all that kind of fun stuff. We've got some amazing relationships in the background with our legal teams, um, with our insurance partners. And really, we're just finalizing a few details in our actual product offering to get us to market. So we're just so close. Um, yeah, we're so close. And we're, we're hoping to be launching before Christmas um, with, with our first offering to market, which will be amazing. That's so exciting. But I do remember a call that we had recently and you told me that you had to scrap plan A for, for plan B. I want to I want to understand what did plan A look like? What did you have to scrap? And where did you head next? There's been a few plan A's that have gotten scrapped for plan B's <laughs> along so the way. So we're talking A, B, C, D, E, we're F, talking A, B, C, D, E, yeah. And I think, you know, as a founding team, we've always, we always, we had a very ambitious vision for how we wanted to come into the market. Um, and then you have a number of, like, to be candid, you have a number of reality checks along the way. Um, you know, you have a certain vision of how much money you want to, um, raise. We weren't able to raise. We were naive. You know, we, we went into this process thinking, let's go and raise $2 million. It's going to be amazing. Um, and then we can do this and we can do that. And then the market, the VC world, the, the venture capital world very quickly went, that's not how it works, pet. Um, you know, there's, there's other things that you need to do first. And, you know, so we ended up uh, fundraising from in a more iterative way. So getting smaller amounts of money, hitting certain milestones, moving along the journey towards launch. So we've been able to do do that. So that was one sort of little pivot plan A to plan B, which was how we were going to raise our money. Um, there was another one. So uh, there was a massive regulatory change that came into effect in October last year uh, around how you could sell insurance. So there was a moment essentially where the backbone of what we wanted to do, which was to distribute insurance at the point of sale, that came under fire because essentially, and I won't go into it because regulation is boring, um, but there were there are some some regulatory changes that basically made that not not doable. So there's a new um, some new reg around that. So again, we had to sit down with our lawyers and say, okay, Plan A, that's no longer available to us. What does Plan B look like? And our plan B is pretty cool, right? So we're, we're really happy and, and there's some elements actually around that plan B, which is essentially to offer free insurance at the point of purchase um, for a short period of time and then give customers the opportunity to upgrade to a paid policy. Um, that's better. Like it, it, it's actually better than what we originally planned to go to market with and we think our opportunity for conversion rates will be much better um, with that model. So that was another example of a plan A to plan B. Um, and then the last one that we were talking about, Caitlin, when we chatted was wanting to launch with a certain product and it's just not ready. It's just not something that we're able to do yet. And so we had a decision to make around, 
are we are we stubborn? Do we sit and wait and try to get this thing cooked up to to the point that we wanted to launch it with, or do we pivot with a more direct to consumer product, which is what we're going to do? So basically, um, when we launch, you will be able to jump on and purchase insurance um, for items that you already own. That wasn't the original plan, but we like that also, right? It's a it's a great revenue model. It means. Once we've launched, we're talking to everybody, not just our retail part, um, customers of our retail partners. So, you know, I think that never stops. And I, I don't imagine we'll ever get to a place where we can just kind of blindly hit, hit all of our best plans. I think you always have to be iterating and, and kind of going with the flow, right? What were some of those chats like between the three of you? Did you all freak out? Was there one person who was more <laughs> level-headed than the other two? Were you all in agreement in terms of the way to pivot the business? Like take us into those conversations. What were those conversations as a founding team like? It's so funny because we have a like a group chat and it's always like Sophie and I going, what about this? Oh, my God. We could, like, like we're just like ping, 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 and Cam like we'll put his head up at the end of the day and go like like on one of the comments like you know so we all process it quite differently so I think Soph and I in particular go into solution mode neither of us we're, we're just people that don't give up so if, if there's a brick wall we're like who's got a sledgehammer um, or a ladder or a vehicle to go around it like it, it's it, we're not the type of people to find those kind of situations particularly um sort of challenging we just go straight into solution mode and then we've got cam who's a who's a thinker and a processor so he takes his time and his space and then comes back to the table with something that's really well thought out um, and and really considered and calm so that's one of the advantages i think about having a really well-rounded founding team is that we all approach problems in a different way and so ultimately the diversity of thinking and the diversity of backgrounds of, of us as a group um, we pop out the other side with what I think is often the most brilliant response to sort of the most challenging situations. Um, so we swear, I swear a lot. So I'm known <laughs> to just like have a little sailor mouth moment and then we just move <laughs> to solutions because, and we often will say to each other like, of course, you know, it can't like really, you, you want to build a billion dollar business and you think it's going to be easy. Come on now. Like let's go, let's mm -hmm. hit this next challenge and, and crack on. So yeah, it's all, always good humour, a lot of swearing and, um, yeah, problem solving, I would say, is what's happening behind the scenes. And often the bigger the bigger the business, the bigger the problem, right, which is a great thing. Do you ever find yourself or, you know, your team going, this is a problem that we don't need to be solving? This is too small? This is not actually going to be moving us forward? I think that's happened when um, probably not so much a problem but we've where we've sort of been hung up on wanting a certain feature or a certain thing and we're like really super committed to that so when we started out we really wanted um we had some very clear visions around what we wanted the excess to look like and what we wanted the policy documents to look like right and we was you know we we have softened on our view on that i think sometimes you have to go like are we going to die in the ditch over this like so I, I don't think we've ever kind of got to the place where we said we don't want to solve that problem but more prioritizing like what are our do or die things in terms of what we go to market with and then where are we going to iterate? And I think we've been pretty balanced in, and I think any founder has to do that because you're in a resource constrained environment, whether it be time or money or whatever, having the maturity to sort of say, okay, here are the things that I'm going to like just, you know, definitely sort of non-negotiable and here are the things that will iterate over time once we're better funded or we have a more feedback from our customers or whatever. Because when you're excited and juiced in the very, very early stages, you want what you go to market with to be your grand vision. And I don't think there's any founders that have sort of not gone through that experience where you go, here's the grand vision, and then you kind of have to sort of chip away at the edges just a little bit, bring yourself back to reality. Um, but that's, it's battles and wars, right? And I think you do that to win the bigger, the bigger war. Have you always aligned in terms of what's a battle and what's a war? Or have there um, been differences in opinion? It's funny. Like... I almost want more conflict within the founding team. I know that sounds crazy, but you hear founders talking about, you know, how they always get along and there's there's no conflict and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, different perspectives and, and people sort of chipping in and seeing things from a different perspective is really, really valuable, especially when you're trying to disrupt an industry or create change. 
Um, most of the time we're aligned on the big stuff that we're aligned um, and then we'll have different views on certain things within our domain of expertise. So, um, yeah, I rely really heavily on, on so for anything related to brand messaging and um, marketing and, and PR and I would never, like if she had a certain view, like we, we always revert to the experts in our team and I think being able to take counsel from your experts is part of building a great team and a, a great business and same with financial stuff with Cam. Um, yeah, and occasionally it just comes down to it where I'll make a captain's call about something. We don't over-collaborate, but we do make sure that we're always all being heard for all of our decisions. Love that. Love that. <laughs> so we want to talk about partnerships because obviously building a financial product or we assume building a financial product requires strategic partnerships, whether that be underwriting for insurance or distribution partnerships. So can you talk to us about your partnerships and who you've managed to land and get on board? Yeah, so um, it, it's a really challenging thing that you face when you're sort of, you, you've come down from having this amazing idea and then you're now into a phase where you need to execute. And we've known from day one, the industry we're taking on is is epic, right? There's almost like it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. So we knew very early that we needed to land partners behind the scenes that made us a force, right? So we have an awesome legal team um that that works out of sydney um ptw law there tolly and his team are, in, are sensational and we rely on them so heavily it's such a compliant in, uh, heavily compliant industry none of us have financial backgrounds that's a risk in itself right um so they are sensational and and knowing when to take counsel from your experts is a big part of the journey um, and we have a great partner in our, our marketing and comms side of things and and our technology team right so if you see what's happening in the world around cybersecurity and all the stuff <laughs> around yeah. tech. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to have um, tech founders when you're, you know, you're starting a business. It's a bit of an old school view. Um, I've worked in technology for many years, but I'm not a technologist and I don't code and I, I wouldn't know how to use a printer, frankly, I'm being honest, I struggle. Um, so that's, that's a, a weak point for us. But the way that we manage that is by getting on board the most amazing technology partner who I won't reveal at this point, but we will down the track. Um, and really just using their deep expertise around building our technology has really been built to be incredibly robust um, and stand up to sort of what's happening in the industry as well, given the types of products that we're that we're servicing. Um, it's super important. And then our insurance partners. So we we have a, an organization called um, Ensure that we're working with through a part of the um, delivery side of everything that we do and, and compliance. Um, and Richard, Richard Oliver Underwriters are our um, global underwriting partner. Again, it's not the kind of thing where you can just bang out an email, hi, I'm Catherine and I want to sell some insurance. Like, you know, I mean, although I wouldn't put it past me doing something like that. But, yeah, they're sensational and they've seen – they are all believers and I think that's a big part of when you're selecting partners – you want experts, and but for, first and foremost, you want believers and they, they get it. They get what we're trying to achieve um, and they're here for it. So, um, yeah, we've been so lucky to have so much horsepower behind us. What was the pitch to them like? I mean, these are obviously people who have operated in the more traditional insurance industry, especially like your insurance partners, right? Like when you pitch to them, did they immediately get the vision or did it take a bit of work on your part to actually get them across the line. It's funny. So it started with our lawyer, right? And you would think that a lawyer would be sort of such a conservative voice when it came to, hello, again, I'm Catherine and here's Sophie and Cam and we'd like to disrupt the insurance industry. Um, he, Tolly, he's sensational. He got it from day one, right? And that unlocked a lot of other high-value partnerships because once you have that voice behind you, um, it, it does de-risk the partnership for, for everybody else who sort of follows along the line. We have spoken to people that absolutely haven't got it. Um, people who are probably a little bit um, jaded and, and weathered by the insurance industry, if you think about what the insurance industry has been through in the last couple of years with catastrophic weather events, um, there's a lot of tired people, disillusioned people, I would say, in the industry who are really trying to get their head around what it means for them and their future. So sure, you know, not everyone thinks you're amazing and we have come up against people who have been uncomfortable with the level of risk potentially in terms of what we're wanting to do. 
who are not confident around this market that we're trying to target. So we've had pushback around that. Um, but ultimately we didn't want to partner with those people. And I've, you know, I always said to the team, like that's, that's fantastic. And I totally respect that feedback and you have to listen to feedback. You're crazy. If you don't listen to the feedback of someone with 50 years industry experience, like you just, you can't completely disregard that. Right. But equally our partner had to get it. And so when we did pitch to Tolly and Rami at Enshaw and then Adam at Richard Oliver, their eyes lit up they got it you can see that they believe in the future of their industry um and they're up for it so um to be able to partner with those kind of people that's where we get a lot of energy from them as well because they're up for it and they see it they can they can see the opportunity with their within their own industry and that a lot of the opportunity will be taken up by a new incumbent and i think yeah so we we were able to win them over which is good (laughs) that's what you need to do doesn't surprise me just hearing you speak about like your passion and your enthusiasm and your conviction comes through oh, thank for you. sure. So I can imagine being on the other side of the table and 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 hearing the pitch and hearing the vision and also being like, yeah, I'm buying into this. Like it definitely yeah. comes across. Oh, I appreciate that. And you know what? Pitching is hard. Like I think it's one of those things that no one teaches you how to pitch. Like if you think about the skills that entrepreneurs learn, you know, we learn to solve problems every pitch deck is oh what's the problem you're solving we learn to be obsessed about our market the market but ultimately you do have to be able to get people on board sell the dream sell the story have enough depth to show that you can execute right because a story is one thing but the capability and depth to execute on your idea is the x factor like that's where it all that's what people put bets on right Um, when they invest in you is your ability to execute and deliver um so it is an important skill and I think not many people are supported in developing their capability to get out there, um, especially women. Like I'll put it out there, it's not necessarily a trait that's often highly valued in women, the ability to pitch, do deals, ask for money, um, you know, all that stuff. It, it is a unique skill and it's something that um, people need, need help developing, I think, if they're going to be successful. Well, I think that's a great segue because I would love to talk to you about the art of doing a deal. And I think you've got a lot to teach our listeners. So maybe let's like start with what is what makes a great deal? What makes a great deal in your eyes? A great deal in my eyes is, this is going to sound really um, cliched, but I think everyone has to win, right? Like you can't have a party feeling hard done by at the end of the day. Um, you, you need to get to a position where it's mutually beneficial and each party understands their benefit in the deal and has clarity around why they win, why you win, and then therefore we're all working in each other's interests. Um, you know, and I do think it's as simple as that. And too many people, I think, approach deal making um, with the view of how can I win this and get the best outcome for me. But the problem is if you are in a partnership and you have a party that is feeling like they were hunted by in the deal process, it's going to, that's going to come up and bite you at some point, right? And, at the, you know, the first conversation you'll have within a founding team is the equity share. Like that's the first deal you do. And again, not many people will talk about it is do we split it three ways? Is there a lead? Is there, you know, that, being able to have that conversation and come up with an equity split amongst founders is one of the most challenging um conversations and and deals that you have to do as part of being a, you know being a new business how did you guys approach that it's interesting how did we approach it so we um we just had a really a really big open conversation about it i ultimately brought this vision um well when it was you know at the first founding stage to the table um and i approached sophie um i was actually really sneaky at the time, Soph was doing strategy consults and I paid to have a strategy consult with her and actually pitched her peachy. Um, <laughs> and like, oh, Resourceful. For, I love that. Yeah, that's clever. <laughs> um, but Soph is such a switched on businesswoman. She's got so much experience and she could see from instantly, especially for her customers, right? You know, we want to offer insurance on high-end bags and, and she understands the customer experience and so that was the lens 
that she saw the opportunity through. And then she brought in Cam and um, look, we just talked about it. We all, I'll be really candid, you know, the guys were really comfortable with me having a controlling stake and them, ha- them having smaller um, shares within the business and, and that's where we landed. So you just got to be able to talk and communicate and make sure that people have the opportunity to articulate what they want and then um, no, no hands from the grave after that, right? <laughs> you mentioned earlier that um, women in particular don't particularly like, you know, doing deals or sales. You know, I think we often speak to our community and they're just like, oh, it's just one thing I hate. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's not my forte. What are some top tips, tactics that you can share that can help people to get the deal done? Aside from understanding, obviously, you know, where every party sits and what the benefits are, what are some of those, yeah, practical, tactical takeaways? I think, and and just to clarify, I think women are great at doing deals and selling. I think, however, they are often skills that are not traditionally valued as being desirable in women. So, you know, that idea of a woman who's too forceful or sits at the table and tries to take control, you know, we see that as very desirable and attractive in a male, but not so desirable and attractive in a female. So I think there's a bit of unlearning that you need to do within yourself around your own identity, around, you know, your ability to sell, to do a deal, to ask for what you want, to share the story, to take up space. You know, when you're pitching, you are taking up space it's about you. It's about the story you're telling and you have to get comfortable with the idea. You know, I've, I've been to pitch nights and pitch to 400, not 400 people, 40 people, um, and pitch to 40 people. It's about you in that moment. You are it. They're listening to you. They've come to see you and you have to get comfortable with that first and foremost, being the center of attention. Um, and then the, I think the other thing is talking to people. I think often we can hide behind emails. We can sit in our offices and think and plan and get out nice notebooks and strategize, but the confidence comes from talking. The confidence comes from asking for feedback, receiving it and acting on it and taking the time to just craft your proposition, learn, tweak, practice. Um, You know, you don't want to be doing one pitch when it's the biggest pitch of your life. You, You want to have done a lot of it. You want to be really comfortable and ready for game day. Um, and I actually came off a call the other day. I can't remember what it was about. And I said to Sophie, I was like, oh, I was good on that one. I was good. I was good on that one. <laughs> and she was like, I bloody hope you were. You've been doing this for over a year. And it's like, yeah, that's true, right? Like you would hope. Yeah. You, you would hope that you have got your narrative. You've got your story. And I know the question was about doing deals, but you have to completely understand all of those bits to understand what a good deal looks like, you know, what you have to offer. And what you need to get out of it is is a big part of it. And not being afraid to ask. And again, that's not a trait that's particularly um, highly regarded in women is to say, hey, I need $2 million, please. And this is what I'm going to do with it. And um, I'm going to make you a lot of money. You up, you're on, let's go kind of thing. That's it's a, it's a big thing to have to do, right? So what was your experience like raising capital? You said earlier on that you originally had this $2 million plan and then the market, you know, changed and and raising capital for everyone became really really hard and so you ended up taking smaller check sizes can you tell us a little bit about that process like yeah how was that process it's interesting because again like if you have a great idea you don't most people know nothing about this process right like you really are learning you're so green unless you've done it before so we started by targeting the big VCs across Australia, like the biggest names that you can think of, sending out pitch decks. And we were convinced that they were going to be like, oh, my God, thank God, this is the deal we've been looking for. Um, they weren't. You know, we got a few responses and lots of no, no's. And I, uh, sorry, not even no's, like, like lots of non-responses. So being ghosting. For that. Ghosting. Ghosting is such a thing. Oh, it's, um, <laughs> it's funny. I, you know, I've been ghosted by our existing investors. I'm going to put it out there. So um, <laughs> it's it's one of those things what? that, well, because we're not the center of the universe. They have other things mm, going on, yeah. right? And I think you can it can feel very personal when that happens, mm. but having a bit of empathy for where they're at in their life, you are not the center of what's going on, even mm. though Peachy is the center of my existence. Um so we started with VCs. We had a vision. We, we thought we were going to raise some big money. Um, and then there's a question of valuation and it's often something that you're not prepared for. If you want two million bucks, well, then what is your company valued at? And then how much are you giving away? And then when you work back that, um, 
that sort of conversation, uh, sorry, that, that um, calculation, you realize that even if you could get it, it may not be the best thing for you to do is to give away that much of your company that early on in the game. Um, so raising is really a game of getting what you need to move forward, but preserving enough equity in your organization so that when it comes to doing a big deal, you've got enough left to give away to raise the big money. Um, so the VC path didn't, didn't work for us. We then started getting connected with some angel investors within Western Australia um, through Perth Angels, which has been sensational, and a couple of um, friends and family and people within our networks. Um, and yeah, we, we sort of cobbled together around with um, a mixture of, of um, private investors and angels here in WA and then got to work. So that was really what it was all about, was just saying, here we are, here's evaluation and, and taking that first load of capital and then making it go as far as possible so that we could hit significant milestones. And then we've just recently done a smaller round to top us up as we prepare to get into market. Um, but we're, we're still fundraising as we speak. So we're looking to, um, to, to raise a bit of money at the moment just so we can, um, yeah, sort of do, do the, uh, the whole idea justice, I suppose, once we get into market. Yeah, brilliant. Do you have one person who's leading the raise? Like it's such a time-intensive yeah. process for founders so we, we and it can really take. Yeah, we didn't. Initially, we just had a group. We were able to pull together a, a round on a, um, on a, a sort of pretty simple term sheet. We are now doing a much bigger raise and, and we do have a lead investor, a, a private office, uh, a private family office. Um, that's doing that leading for us. Um, so we'll see how that turns out, right? But it, it's true. It, it is one of those things you also don't, when you go into it, you you don't understand how important it is to have a lead to do a lot of that legwork for you. But it, it is so time intensive. And is there anything really important that you've learned during this process that you'd like to share? I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to, yeah, Anna and I are experiencing both sides now of, of that table. You know, we, we have been through an accelerator and we've, um, we've pitched and now we're kind of sitting on the other side um, being pitched too, which is really fun. What have you learned? Is there anything that you wanted to share? I think the biggest lesson is, and I think I alluded to it earlier, it's not personal and you really do need to be able to get yourself into a space where you have um, you come at it with a business perspective and that you come at the process with empathy and understanding of, of both sides of the table. Initially, it can be frustrating because you're like, oh, my God, this person's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Why aren't they giving me money? But it's, it's all irrelevant. It's not about you as an individual. It's what they've got going on in their portfolio, what they're interested in, where they can add value, their capacity. There's so many factors and it's truly exhausting if you go through this process taking it personally, even though you'll hear everywhere, we invest in founders, we invest in people and the founding team. You know, that rejection can feel very personal if they turn around and, and don't want to invest. So, um, just remembering that there is room for you to be successful in, in this ecosystem um, you don't. You may not know exactly where your money is going to come from, but you just have to keep going and um, and not take it personally, and, and definitely be prepared for knockbacks because that's just part of it. You, you, you know, it is it is a reality of the process. There will be people that will look at you and say no thanks, and um, you can't let that get you down. How do you disassociate yourself from that rejection? Like, how do you how do you personally separate yourself from that and kind of emotionally disconnect and just look at it with a really sort of like intellectual point of view? Because that can I be really hard for a lot of founders. It, it is really hard, and I think one of the things that I always think about it's like old school sales, right? Is it it is a numbers game, and you know you have to be able to say that to have confidence that you'll get the outcome. But it's a process to get there. It can't be a one and done. And if you know, you just have to keep going and, and hit those numbers and have those conversations. Um, and in terms of dis, I don't know how I do it. It's interesting. I, I'm more of a if that wasn't meant to be, that's not meant to be. If that person doesn't want to partner with me, if they don't get a kick out of hearing what we want to do, that's cool. They're not the right partner for us. Um, I want the you know we want the right investors. Um, and so I'm kind of happy to surrender it to the universe and, and go like next, right? Because you can't dwell on the ones that didn't work out. Um, it's just a waste of energy ultimately. Um, but yeah, I really, it's a process. How often do you push until a no is really a no? Because we're often told, you know, don't like a no is not, you know, 
keep knocking on the door and keep keep trying like how how much time or energy do you spend until you go okay that clearly is a no and I'll I'll take the next oh, it's such a good question um <laughs> when we're ghosted we'll do three follow-ups and that was probably that was more early on um we sort of do three follow-ups but if I pitch to someone if I've looked them in the eye and if I've sold them the dream so to speak and and they're not on that's cool they're not buying what I'm selling so I'll respectfully move on um, you know, we want to partner with people who are as juiced about this as we are. And I think that's such a great test. Like I want them to walk away, to be thinking about Peachy, to be coming back to me with questions. And that's happened, you know, with our investors and with our partners that are pumped. Um, so I'm happy to just surrender those ones and just let them go. Like if I've given you my good pitch and you're not keen, that's fine. I'm not going to, I'm not going to chase you down the road. Moving on. I'm not yeah. doing that. And you know, like it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's like more fish in the sea. So many fish. I, also, I just love the fact that you used the word. I hope everyone is as juiced as me when you're called peachy. Like that just Ooh. makes me so happy. I yeah. About that. Yeah. I was just that. like, oh my We're god! Sorry. I was all I saw was the juiciest, ripest peach when you said that. And I was like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But you can tell we're a pretty high energy team, right? And so, yes. like, I don't want to be. We've always said, like, if they're not pumped at this point, yeah. Like, imagine what they're gonna like. They're with you the whole way, right? And you don't want a reluctant investor or somebody that you're always convincing that this is what we're doing. It's great. It's going to be great. Like. We're so blessed, the partners we have, like they get it and they're just as excited as we are. And I think any founder should hold out for that because that is the ultimate um, partnership as you get to hard times, um, having people that believe in you and didn't reluctantly invest or, or have a question mark over you when they came on board, I think, you know, it's, it's so important. Yeah, I think that's great. a good philosophy yeah. for anyone in business, not only for investor partners but general partners. It's like you want to be in these relationships with people that see your vision, that support you, that want you to succeed. Um, Ultimately, like that's, yeah. yeah. I had this conversation with with, um, one chap and he has a lot of um, industry experience and he just wasn't convinced. And um, I think he even said to me, no one's going to buy that. I was like, okay. But there's a part of your ego that goes, fuck you, I'm actually, I'm going to get you on the hook and I'm going to show you and it's going to be amazing. But like, what a waste of energy. And I, and we sort of decided we didn't want that guy at the table. I, I don't want people at the table who I'm going to have to convince step by step or if things don't go well, they're coming from a perspective of, see, I was worried about this. I told you so. Versus, yeah. and he's a really totally. cool, you know, he's a great guy. But, you know, I didn't, we don't <laughs> need somebody. Like when it's hard, it's hard enough. You don't need mm, people totally. at the table going, I knew this would happen. You need people, <laughs> you know, like kind of helping you chart the course to success. Yeah, um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's but I am a stubborn person and like if someone doesn't believe it, I'm like, write them down and I'm looking forward to being successful and you know yeah so it. put them on an email list so in a year or in two years you can send them an email and be like here we Talk are down. remember that time no and you yeah. can't would you like some insurance yeah, yeah. Oh, come on, you're not our target market that's right um no, so I think good. it's easy to be petty and I think you can blow off a bit of steam yeah. By sort of being petty, having a joke and whatever, but then you've just got to leave that stuff in the past. Otherwise, totally. it's just too, too much. Toxic. Mm. Yeah. 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 What have you learned about yourself throughout this process? You know, from March 2021 to today, year and a half, like what have you learned about yourself, both as a business owner, founder, leader, human being? Oh, such a big question. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is that once I do believe in something, you know, I've, I've got what it takes. And, and I would say this of, of Cam and Soph as well. Once the belief is there, we absolutely have what it takes to execute. Um, we've managed to navigate lots of different challenges. And, you know, I think that is, that is just a, a great thing to know about yourself that if you, once you back yourself in that, you know, you, you, you've got what it takes to follow through. And I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a nice thing to know about yourself as you mature and, and get more confident and start to have uh, that sort of um, self-belief, I suppose. It's not a, it's a bit of a dorky thing to say, but ultimately there's a self-belief there that we can get this done and that's exciting as well. Um, what else have I learned? I have validated the fact that I am not good with detail at all and I have zero tolerance for small, petty tasks, which is a problem. <laughs> 
Um, so I validated that, um, you know, I, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not and, and sort of what can create massive roadblocks and slow me down. Um, and, yeah, and um, what else have I learned? Can I just ask off the back of that, how do you solve for that, being in a small business with a small founding team where everyone has to sort of execute and be across the detail to a degree? Like how, do you, how have you solved for that? Um, I delegate a lot of that to Cam. Like he he thrives on it. It's his it's his bag. So you know, I think when you know you've got one player that has a weakness in another area and another that's it's their strength, I just delegate really quickly. So I don't let it sit with me. I know that it's a task that's come to me that I'm it's torture. I'd rather not deal with it, and I know exactly where that needs to go. And then I have trust that that person is it's now in someone's hands that it is it is their strength. And I think as a leader um, in general, that is a great rule, like play to everyone's strengths, know exactly what people thrive on and make sure that their workload is sort of stacked in, in that way. Yeah. Um, has, yeah. It, has it been – oh, sorry, you keep going. No, no, you go. It's fine. No, I was going to say, has it been a moment, you know, since last year where you're just like, oh, this, this is a hairy challenge. This might be a bit above and beyond – my expertise or, or um, what I think I'm capable of solving. And have, what have you done in that instance? Have you brought on someone that's, you know, an advisor, an expert to help you overcome that challenge? Um, so building the tech is probably a really good example of that. Understanding what we wanted our technology to do, not just today, but in the future is so outside any of our realms of mm. capability. So the team that we have, um, they're an Australian-based organisation. They are wicked at this stuff. They thought for us and, and basically the brief was, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, we don't even know what to ask for, right, oh, wow. because it's not even on our – well, in, in terms of security, like if you were building something, all you know is to, in the brief is to say this thing has to be super secure. <laughs> like, you know, you don't even know what you what need. What does that mean? Like how do you get that? Like, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. How does that – and to what standard, right? Like we want an e-commerce – experience but we are selling a financial product it's a big deal it's important that we need that to be as robust as possible and simple tech is not going to do the job right um so i think that's probably the biggest example um is around our technology we knew what the customer experience wanted what we wanted the customer experience to be so we led with that and we basically said like can you please think for us in terms of what this needs to do in the future so even things like passwords you know we're moving in with, with having passwordless technology i wouldn't have known to say can we not have passwords like that wouldn't have been something i'd asked for um, but it's something that's been built into the technology um, so that's an example anything legal you know we have such a great team we just defer to them um, but the biggest thing I think more than a, oh my God, I can't do it challenge has been the glacial pace of some of the things like, so we're charging, we want these things to happen. Um, and some of the more detailed elements of our, um, corporate partnerships and our policy in particular, that, that is, has moved at glacial pace. And so that's a bit, it's a lot to sort of breathe and, um, you know, because we can't make that go any faster. It just, that just is what it is. And, um, you know, you just have to write it out. You do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, you could be all systems go, but there are some really fundamental pieces that, that require time and attention um, and unfortunately, you know, often outside of your control. Yeah, and, and that's the industry we play in. And I think at times we've had, we've had frustrations about the insurance industry, but ultimately that's our industry. We're part of it now. Um, and so understanding its quirks and, and what's good and, and not so good about it are a big part of our learning curve. And so we're not going to rage against the machine and, and waste energy fighting it. We have to kind of learn to be part of it, still, you know, constructively challenge things. So like, mm. you know, do policy documents have to be 68 pages? Can we chat about that? Um, you know, like, so we'll construct. Do they? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, so we're working on one that's as short as possible. We'd like the world record for the shortest policy, but that's another chat. Um, yeah, so it's one of those things. We are part of the insurance industry. We're new to the industry. We have to have respect for, you know, what it has been built on. Like, And I think people who want to disrupt can very quickly want to blow up the whole thing. Um, 
And But ultimately, it's an existing established industry. So it's our role to understand not just what's not working because often entrepreneurs are very problem-focused, but what is working, what's good about it, what do we want to retain, what lessons do we want to leverage that those before us have learnt. Um, so, so yeah, that's probably more, more it is just kind of orientating ourselves to the industry in general. So what's the vision? What's like the big, bold, long-term vision for Peachy? The big, oh, it's a, such a good question. The big vision for now is we really want to create a relationship, a trusted relationship with a generation of people on this topic of risk and money. Um, so it's bigger than insurance, but the first step really is to, yeah, have that trusted relationship with that audience. And I think we believe we're the brand to do that, that we can do that. We believe that that is up for grabs. Um, we believe that that is not going to come from an incumbent, that a new player is going to come in and really partner with and stand side by side um, millennials and, and Zoomers or Gen Z and start to build a brand that is for them, that listens to them, that responds to their behaviours and their values. And that's up for grabs. And so that's the big vision for Peachy is, is to take that on um, as that new incumbent brand. So just a tiny little aspirational thought there. Just little. Just nothing little, little. major. Nothing major. Nothing major. Nothing Sounds major pretty major to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, why not, right? Like that, that really, when we think about it, we're like, who, who is having this conversation with this audience in a way that they want to be engaged and heard? Who is building products for this audience in a way that's not just what the incumbents want to sell to them, but what these customers actually need? Um, and who is a trusted advisor in this realm? And I don't know anyone that goes, I love my insurer or I love my bank. I'm so committed to them. I mean, maybe because they've given you a low rate or something like that. But ultimately, I think we, we believe there's room in the market for that player and that that player can be peachy. So we had a couple of really good takeaways from this chat. Firstly, that initial conversation that you have with your founding team about your shareholder agreement and the equity split is actually one of the most important ones that you'll have in your business journey. And the more intentional you are about setting up your agreement and getting on the same page from the get-go, especially about what you do if something happened in the business, for example, if one of the founding team were to quit, the better placed you'll be down the track to really manage that situation well. And secondly, know when to stick to your guns on a decision versus letting go and not, as Catherine said, dying in a ditch over it. Literally, the only thing that's guaranteed in business is that you will have to change your plan and you'll have to flip-flop on decisions that you've made. So get really clear about which decisions you'll compromise on and which ones you absolutely won't. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Apple or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And jump over to Instagram. We're at lady.brains. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and all of the ones that you've listened to thus far. 